giving young women an opportunity to drown their sorrows in 3.2% beer for the effects of past discrimination. Welcome back to the Ginsburg Tapes. I'm your host, Lauren Moxley. On deck today, two things that don't always go hand in hand, beer and sex equality. Today's case is Craig versus Boren. This case was about a challenge to a law that said that women could buy 3.2% alcohol beer at age 18, but that men had to wait until they were 21. Ginsburg didn't argue this one in court, but she wrote an amicus brief, was intimately involved in case strategy, and sat at counsel's table at oral argument. The case was argued quite poorly, but very entertainingly, by the colorful Fred Gilbert, who Ginsburg somewhat affectionately called Ranger Fred. Even though Ginsburg didn't argue this case, I just couldn't bring myself to skip this one. We've got Ginsburg, we've got beer, we've got an uproarious oral argument, and we finally got that standard of review that we've been waiting for this whole time. Nearly five years after Ginsburg began her fight to raise the bar on the standard of review that should apply in constitutional challenges to laws that discriminate on the basis of sex, we will finally get our answer. That's right, everybody. It's not in the case about women's duty to serve on juries, or the unequal distribution of benefits to military service members, or any of the other laudable cases that we've been focusing on this podcast. Rather, it's the beer case that gets these justices to finally give us a standard of review that applies to laws that discriminate on the basis of sex. Hold on to your hats, TGT listeners. It's going to be a frothy one. (laughs) Yeah, I went there. In 1972, a young student named Mark Walker was sitting in his political science class at Oklahoma State University when he learned about the Equal Rights Amendment. Remember that in 1972, which was the time of the first oral argument that would be explored on this podcast in episode one, the political debate over the Equal Rights Amendment was in full swing. And the ERA would have provided that equality of rights under the law shall not be abridged or denied on account of sex. And Mark Walker started to think about a law that discriminated on account of sex that directly affected his everyday life, the near beer law. If he wanted to get his hands on 3.2% alcohol beer, he needed to ask a girl to go buy it for him, and that didn't seem right to him. And so Mark decided to write his term paper on this issue. And as research for his paper, he stopped by the old honk and holler, which is exactly what it sounds like. It was a convenience store just about four blocks from the university where you'd pull up, honk your car, holler, and someone would come out to take your order. And so for this term paper, Mark interviewed one of the co-owners of the honk and holler, Carolyn Whitener, who had an economic injury from this beer law, lost sales. Mark eventually teamed up with Carolyn Whitener, along with his younger fraternity brother, Curtis Craig, to challenge this Oklahoma law. So this trio consisting of Mark Walker, his fraternity brother, Curtis Craig, and Carolyn Whitener of the Honk and Holler, were represented by Fred Gilbert, otherwise known as Ranger Fred. They found and sought out Fred Gilbert because of his prior work in a case called Lamb versus Brown. There, he successfully challenged another sex-discriminatory Oklahoma law. That law provided that females were criminally responsible as adults at age 18, but men at age 16. But even with the help of Ranger Fred, the fraternity brothers and Carolyn Whitener lost their case in the district court. 
under a three-judge panel. And as a quick aside, I had a listener question from Eddie, who sent me a DM on the Ginsburg Tapes Instagram as to why so many of these cases go directly from a three-judge panel of the district court to the Supreme Court, skipping the Court of Appeals. This is a great question, and I've been meaning to cover it for a while. Because a federal case as we know it today generally has three levels. You'll be heard in the district court by one judge. Then your case might go on appeal to the Court of Appeals, and you'll have a panel of three judges. And then it's possible, but extremely unlikely, that the Supreme Court will grant review and hear your appeal from the Court of Appeals. And so that's a different structure than what keeps happening in these cases, where a three-judge district court panel hears a case, and then the case goes directly to the Supreme Court. And the answer is that until 1976, three-judge panels heard lawsuits challenging the constitutionality of state and federal statutes. So that's all of these cases. And so until 1976, you had to appeal a decision of a three-judge panel in the district court directly to the Supreme Court. And here's the really interesting part. The Supreme Court was then required to take your case. Congress repealed this practice in 1976 because it was way too inefficient. And because the Supreme Court was required by this law prior to 1976 to take these appeals, these constitutional challenges took up a third of their docket. After 1976, Congress reduced this practice to very few substantive areas, such as redistricting challenges, certain campaign finance challenges, and challenges to certain laws involving the appointment of sitting members of Congress to cabinet positions. So under this pre-1976 regime, Ranger Fred lost his case before a three-judge panel in the district court. And after the loss, Ranger Fred was discouraged. He actually considered dropping the case. In comes Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Here was yet another example of sex role stereotyping under American law. Here, stereotyping of the compliant, obedient female. What is more, it put teenage women in the uncomfortable and oftentimes coercive position of having to buy beer for their young male peers. And Ginsburg had a major role in encouraging Fred to take account of the broader implications of this case, not just young men's ability to drink beer in Oklahoma, but the the implications of this case for sex equality generally under the U.S. Constitution. And she's sitting next to Fred at counsel's table on this crisp fall morning of October 5th, 1976. And Ginsburg was very busy that day, as she had her own oral argument later that afternoon in Calfiano versus Goldfarb, an unequal benefits case that I will cover on the podcast. This is such a fun oral argument, but I have to say that part of the reason that I'm doing this project is so that I can learn more about effective oral advocacy and share what I've learned with you all. Suffice it to say that this oral argument is not exactly the model of advocacy that we're striving to learn from and emulate. And the justices will even ask Ginsburg some substantive questions about this Oklahoma beer case when she steps up to the podium for her oral argument in a different case later that afternoon, as some of their doctrinal questions will not exactly be settled by today's oral argument. So without further delay, let's roll the tape and hear what Ranger Fred had to say about this Oklahoma sex discriminatory beer law. We'll hear arguments next in 75-628, Craig against Boren. Mr. Gilbert, you may proceed whenever you're ready. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. This appeal directly challenges the constitutionality of the Oklahoma beer law 
which says that females may buy beer at 18, 3.2% uh, beer at 18, but males must wait until they're 21 years of age. This is an age sex discrimination for persons 18, 19, and 20 years of age. The law is broad and all-encompassing in its sweep. It says that all females, even those that are the most drunk, uh, most alcoholic, most immature, and most irresponsible, may purchase 3.2% beer at age 18 in absolutely unlimited quantities. The law doesn't say it in quite those words, does it? <laughs> <clears throat> no, Your Honor, and the law doesn't say it in quite the words that uh, all males 18 to 21, even though they are the most mature, most sober, most self-restrained, can't purchase a drop of it, at least directly, until they're 21. But that's what the law does. Now you guys see what I mean. This Oklahoma law simply requires women to be 18 to buy near beer and men to be 21. The law doesn't exactly say in its plain text that even the most drunk, immature, and irresponsible 18-year-old women can buy beer, which is what Ranger Fred decided to lead with in his oral argument. And you heard Justice Stewart jump in immediately and cut Ranger Fred off and say, you know, I don't think the law uses quite those words. So Justice Brennan will hit Ranger Fred with a hard-hitting question. 3.2 alcohol beer can get you drunk, right? And Fred will describe what he sees as Oklahoma's rationale for this sex discriminatory law. He says that Oklahoma is concerned that lowering the drinking age for men will contribute to the overall drunkenness problem in Oklahoma. There's no question in the case that drinking 3.2 beer may make one intoxicated. Uh, I think there is a question, Your Honor. The legislature has concluded that uh, beverages in concentrations of 3.2% alcohol or less is non-intoxicating. In fact, not only the legislature, a popular referendum has said that, and the state Supreme Court has upheld both of them. Well, then what's, what's the relevance of uh, your suggestion that uh, women can get drunk on 3.2 beer? Um, I believe the relevance comes from the state's assertion of what the purpose for the statute is. I think the state asserts that this could contribute to the overall drunkenness problem among young adults. Even though one can't get drunk on Well, <clears throat> Your Honor, I am perhaps exaggerating a point there. Uh, it would be difficult. I would hesitate to say it's absolutely impossible. Now, maybe we could take judicial notice of some of these facts, and you won't have to exaggerate them, counsel. Very well, Your Honor. I guess some of us do remember three points. Yes, Your Honor. They're talking about whether you could get drunk on 3.2% beer, and the underlying uh, point they're trying to make is like you have to drink a lot of volume in order to feel the intoxicating effects of the alcohol. And Justice Brennan couldn't help himself but muttering, some of us might remember 3.2 beer. And you heard Fred Hedge saying that perhaps he was exaggerating and saying that you can't get drunk at all. And then you heard Chief Justice Berger jump in to try to keep Fred on track, telling him not to exaggerate and saying that they could take judicial notice of some of these facts. That is classic Chief Justice Berger behavior. And in all of the oral arguments that we've analyzed on this podcast, which are all from the Berger court, the oral argument has stayed more or less on the straight and narrow, pretty close to the core issues of the case. And that's textbook Berger court. Berger was chief from 1969 to 1986, and he was very strict, and he didn't want chatty exchanges or jokes with the oral advocates. The tone of oral argument changed in 1986 because Chief Justice Berger retired and Justice Scalia took the bench. 
Justice Scalia asked more questions, made more comments, and even brought on more laughter than any other justice, changing the nature of oral argument. But even the Burger Court could not resist some levity in this oral argument. So up next, Fred will say that we can never know the real reason for this Oklahoma law. And he's referring to the fact that it was enacted in 1890, and that there's no legislative history indicating why Oklahoma enacted this law. He'll argue that the law is similar to the one struck down in Stanton versus Stanton, which is a case that we discuss on episode four. Stanton involved a constitutional challenge to a Utah law that mandated that a divorced parent provide for a son until he's 21, but a daughter until she's 18. And Justice Rehnquist will ask about Carolyn Whitener, the co-owner of the Honk and Holler, and he'll raise some mootness questions that have come up after Walker and Craig have both turned 21. The real legislative purpose for this discrimination, we don't know. It's been lost in the mists of antiquity. The beer law that we challenge today was originally enacted in 1890 by the first territorial legislature as part of a generalized civil majority statute of 18 for females and 21 for males for virtually all purposes of almost exactly the same type of statute that was held unconstitutional by this court last year in Stanton versus Stanton. Of course, stand against stand didn't involve intoxicating beverages or the 21st Amendment, did it? Uh, no, Your Honor, it was a generalized uh, statute. The particular issue was the question of child support, I believe. And when you say we, you're referring to your client who is the tavern keeper? Uh, yes, Your Honor. And there's, the, uh, there's, there's no uh, potential purchaser left in the case, is there? Well... Technically, he turned 21 about two weeks ago, Your Honor. Well, isn't that, if he technically turned 21, well, I take it that means he had a birthday? Yes, yes uh, Your Honor. So that exchange glazed over two key issues in this case. One is the role of the 21st Amendment. The government had argued that the 21st Amendment, which repealed prohibition, the prohibition on the sale of alcohol, counseled in favor of special deference to the Oklahoma legislature. And the government was relying on this 1972 case, California v. LaRue, where the Supreme Court stated that the 21st Amendment was recognized as conferring something more than the normal state authority over public health, welfare, and morals. And the court even stated that there was a presumption in favor of the validity of state regulation in this area, which the 21st Amendment requires. And Justice Rehnquist's question suggests that he must have been thinking that the 21st Amendment was one way to distinguish Stanton versus Stanton, a decision from the prior term where the court struck down Utah's sex discriminatory definitions of adulthood, women as adults at 18 and men at 21, as a violation of equal protection. Because maybe he could convince his colleagues that the Oklahoma legislature deserved special deference in regulating the sale of alcohol in the manner of their choosing. But neither Ranger Fred nor Ginsburg thought that the 21st Amendment was a determining factor here. Ginsburg explained that it was beyond question that Oklahoma had the authority to regulate effectively the sale and service of alcoholic beverages. But she argued that the 21st Amendment is not a talisman insulating from careful review, legislative resort to gross classification by gender just as drinking preferences and proclivities associated with a particular ethnic group or social class would be perceived as unfair and insubstantial basis for a beverage sale or service prohibition directed at that group or class, so too 
a gender-based classification, should be recognized as an inappropriate and invidious means to the legislative end of rational regulation in the public interest. The second issue that we just glazed over were these standing and mootness questions that are central to this case. By the time of this oral argument, two of the three original plaintiffs in this case, Mark Walker and Curtis Craig, both had turned 21. Mark Walker, whose term paper started this whole thing, was actually thrown out in the district court because he had already turned 21, which is why this case is Craig versus Boren. And at the time of oral argument, Craig had just turned 21. Remember that a case is moot, it's a moot point, when there's no longer a live dispute. Here, Craig could buy the near beer, so he's no longer subject to this discriminatory law. This made the remaining plaintiff, Carolyn Whitener, absolutely critical to the survival of this case. The court needed to find that she had a live dispute in order for the case to stay alive. And Carolyn Whitener had less of a mootness problem as her economic injury would continue even after these two potential purchasers, Craig and Walker, turned 21. There's plenty of other uh, 18 to 20 year old men at Oklahoma State University that she could be selling to at any time. But she did have a standing problem. Remember that standing is another doctrine that's designed to ensure that you have an actual case or controversy and that you're not just using the courts as an arbiter of your ideological suit. And Whitener would have a little bit more of a difficult time in showing that she was actually injured by this discriminatory law, as unlike Walker or Craig, she wasn't actually being denied the ability to drink this beer by the law. She just had an economic injury. Ginsburg noticed this potential issue as they were briefing the case and she wrote Fred a letter alerting him to the potential standing issue and setting forth the best arguments for why she had standing to file suit. Those arguments proved critical to this case. So I'll play the very end of the discussion of standing and mootness, where Justice Rehnquist presses Ranger Fred on remedy and why Whitener is entitled to relief. And you'll hear Fred's somewhat confused explanation for the remedy that he obviously seeks lowering the drinking age to 18 for young men. Supporting an argument that young men or persons down to 17 should buy beer, the vendor would have standing to assert that in addition to the 17-year-olds. But anal analytically speaking, can we really give your vendor client any relief? If we decide that this is an unconstitutional discrimination, don't we have to leave it up to the state of Oklahoma to decide whether all minors up to 21 will be barred, or all minors up to 18 will be barred, so that in, in effect your client's position may be worsened if you win the laws. No, Your Honor, that I don't, uh, let me say first thing. If the legislature wants to raise the age, uh, they can do that in a prospective manner. Now, in judicial action, uh, first of all, the way the complaint is drafted and what is before the court is only the exclusion of the males. Well, but you say, you say what's before the court. What's before the court is your complaint that it's an unconstitutional discrimination to treat, say, women can buy at one age and men at another. Now, I don't know that the parties are free under our decided cases to say you may only decide this case in a particular way. I mean, I think that depends right. on the thrust All of right, our let decision. Me All right. So Fred Gilbert wants the result of this case to be that the drinking age for men for near beer in Oklahoma be lowered to 18. That's the remedy that he's seeking. 
And Justice Rehnquist, rightfully I think, calls him out for this poor legal justification for that desired remedy. It's simply not true that you control the remedy or the outcome of your case based on your complaint, which is the document you file in court setting out the facts and the legal reasoning that you have a claim. And while courts are certainly empowered to strike down laws that they find violate the Constitution, as a general matter, courts can't rewrite laws. And this discussion of remedy might be giving you flashbacks to the argument that I broke down in episode 2, Khan versus Shevin, when Justice Marshall really pressed Ginsburg on the issue of remedy and what would happen to widows of modest means in Tallahassee or northern Florida or other poor parts of Florida if she won her case, if she struck down the law providing a property tax exemption to female widows but not male widowers, widows of modest means would be deprived of a benefit that they currently enjoyed. The better of the argument would have been to rely on recent Supreme Court precedent where the court did make law sex neutral. Chief Justice Berger will now ask Fred Gilbert about the applicability of Kahn versus Chevin, the one case that Ginsburg lost before the Supreme Court. Chevin, sometime in your argument. Your Honor, uh, Kahn was a question, I believe, of compensatory discrimination for the effects of past uh, discrimination for the unfavored sex. I I think it is clearly inapplicable in this case. Uh, I mean, if the compensation is access to 3.2% beer, uh, the only way that could be compensation for anything would be to say it's giving op- uh, young women an opportunity to drown their sorrows in 3.2% beer for the effects of past discrimination, which I feel... Perhaps you stated the position of Kahn against Chevin in rather a too narrow a way. Didn't the court hold that there are differences which can be recognized by legislative bodies? And uh, isn't that what the legislature of... Uh, the state did? That, uh, Your Honor, that is correct. On the, the accident the, record and on the vulnerability record of uh, males against females? Your Honor, the facts which the legislature took judicial notice of or reacted to in con was the fact of past discrimination. It wasn't really based upon any innate difference between male and female. And there is no basis in this record to say that the legislature even remotely thought of compensating for past discrimination. Now, the difference between male and female in Khan was that the female was the victim of discrimination. Uh, but that, that would not well, apply. There's a passing state. reference to that, but that's not the heart of that decision. Well, it is. The, it, I, I view Khan on the unemployability in large part that happened to come from some past discrimination, but the relative difference in employability of women and men at the age of the people involved there. At a very surface level, the justices sometimes seem to use con as shorthand for this concept that discrimination against men is okay under the Constitution. Or as Chief Justice Berger just put it, that there are differences between the sexes that can be recognized by legislative bodies. And by reading con so broadly, you ignore that these distinctions solidify and perpetuate stereotypes about distinctions between the sexes. But Ranger Fred tried to distinguish Kahn in the same way that Ginsburg had done before him. He argued that Kahn was distinguishable because the extra tax exemption served to compensate for women's lack of equal opportunity in the workforce. And Ginsburg took a similar tact in her amicus brief, distinguishing the post-read cases in which the court gave its stamp of approval to laws that were intended to benefit women. Ginsburg explained that surely the concept of compensatory gender classification 
does not encompass the solace that 3.2% alcohol beer might provide to young women already exposed to society's double standards or about to encounter an inhospitable job market. Ginsburg's amicus brief also described the ways in which these laws that purport to benefit women only serve to entrench their position in American society. On its face, Oklahoma's 3.2% beer differential accords young women a liberty withheld from young men. Upon deeper inspection, however, the discrimination is revealed as simply another manifestation of traditional attitudes and prejudices about the expected behavior and roles of the two sexes in our society. Part of the myriad signals and messages that daily underscore the notion of men as society's active members, women as men's quiescent companions, members of the other or second sex. The 1890 legislature, and there are many theories as to why it happened. Uh, I think the, the theory that there was maybe a legislative intent that little boys were little devils and little girls were little angels is as good as anything I've heard. Uh, States has never come up with what the real reason was, and that was retained in Oklahoma until 1972. Now, in 1972, there were two judicial decisions that told the legislature it, this couldn't survive. One was this court's decision in Reed versus Reed, and the other was a Tenth Circuit decision which held Oklahoma's criminal age sex discrimination unco uh, unconstitutional. So in 1972, the legislature set 18 as the age for criminal and civil majority for both fem females and males, but retained it for this one purpose. Now, did the legislature tell us why they were No, Your Honor, uh, nor has the Attorney General ever told us why. Uh, various, uh, there is no real... Didn't you have a lot of uh, religious groups? Yes, Your Honor. Uh, I can make a statement of counsel that I think it was strictly sectarian pre uh, pressure. Oh, were, were there not, in fact... Questions of that kind? Of yes, Your Honor. Oklahoma There's no legislature. question about it. And that's why it was retained. Yes, Your Honor. It was to save the souls of young men 18 to 21 from exposure to pool, beer, and girls. Oh, geez. Okay. So Oklahoma's distinction between the sexes for the age of the majority dates back to 1890. And there was no legislative history or any other evidence from that time that indicates what was motivating Oklahoma to make this distinction between men and women for the purposes of buying low-alcohol beer. That did not stop the government from offering a whole host of justifications for this age-sex distinction. Fred Gilbert just summarized one of them, that little boys were little devils and little girls were little angels. And while that sounds like classic Ranger Fred hyperbole at this point, it's actually not too far off. The justification that Ranger Fred just described, that the Oklahoma legislator wanted young men to avoid pool, beer, and girls, didn't come from the legislature in 1890, but rather a modern 1970s legislator who was discussing the need to equalize this very law. Over the course of this litigation alone, the government argued that women mature earlier than men, that young men drive more, drink more, and commit more alcohol-related offenses. And they also argued that selling beer to men created a greater potential for causing harm since young men consume 3.2% beer in greater quantity than females. So up next are some more questions from Justice Rehnquist. He'll ask whether there's any legislative purpose at all that Fred Gilbert thinks could justify this law. And I think it's really interesting that Justice Rehnquist is so dominant at this oral argument. Justice Rehnquist took the bench in 1971, just a year before Frontiero, which I broke down in episode one. And he's being a lot more active today, 
four years into his time on the court than any of the oral arguments that we've listened to thus far. And Justice Rehnquist's influence will continue to grow, culminating and continuing after he's appointed as Chief Justice in 1986. First of all, there weren't any statistics. Well, I, what if there were statistics? All right. Your Honor, the, the mere fact that there are more men on the road doesn't mean that the individual male is any more dangerous. Now, maybe since there are more men on the road, there may be more men just by the flow of natural statistics getting involved in collisions. In fact, it would be almost inevitable. But that doesn't mean that the individual male is any more dangerous just because he's a member of a class that has no but that, that means that the the law that jo justice Powell was talking about would be arguably uh, an improvement in safety your honor i would say anything could be you could pass a law saying no negro will drive while intoxicated now this relates to the public thing but you the thing is you can't discriminate even for something like public safety on the basis of certain criteria well, has the court ever held that discrimination of this sort is of the same class as discrimination on the basis of race? Your Honor, this court has come very, very Well, close. I asked you a question. Has it ever held? No, it has never held that it is totally to be treated the same as race, Your Honor. Okay, so I know that we're all basically constitutional experts at this point. So I'm going to very quickly break down what we know about what court should do when a law is challenged under the Equal Protection Clause. So we know that at this point, the court applies a really, really high standard when a law discriminating on the basis of race, national origin, or alienage is challenged, and that that standard is called strict scrutiny. And we also know that if an, any other classification under the law is challenged, any other distinction among groups of people is challenged under the Equal Protection Clause, the Supreme Court says that it must apply this totally dichotomous, very low standard called rational basis review. And we also know, though, that the Supreme Court has struck down all kinds of laws discriminating on the basis of sex in recent years, as Ginsburg's been mounting this campaign. And we know that it seems like the Supreme Court is applying a standard with a bit more teeth than that really, really low rational basis review standard, even if they haven't got five justices to admit it in a majority opinion. And Fred Gilbert is making a point that situates itself in this dichotomous standard of review that applies at this time. He's making the point that it would be obviously offensive if the Oklahoma legislature made some distinction in alcohol sales based on race. And the justices are coming back at him and saying, well, yeah, that's because strict scrutiny applies. If you had some sort of law that made distinctions between what black people, white people, Hispanic people, whatever, could buy beer, which is just a totally insane concept, then there's no way that that law would survive strict scrutiny review from the courts. Because there's no chance that the government could show that its distinction based on race served a compelling governmental interest, and that a law was narrowly tailored to achieve that interest. But maybe when you're in the rational basis world, as technically we are on these uh, constitutional challenges to laws that discriminate on the basis of sex, then the distinction between the groups are going to be upheld because the government just doesn't have to do much to justify a law when rational basis review is the standard that applies. So we're in the Justice Rehnquist show now, so he's going to keep asking questions as he has been, and he's going to ask Ranger Fred whether he wants the Supreme Court to overturn two totally insane Supreme Court decisions from the alcohol context, both of which made distinctions on the basis of sex in terms of alcohol sales, 
One of those is Cronin versus Adams, and the other is Gosert versus Cleary. And if you follow the Ginsburg tapes, Instagram, and Twitter, you are well aware of these crazy decisions. That uh, Cronin against Adams has to be overruled if you were to prevail here? Yes, Your Honor. And are you asking that it be overruled? Yes, Your Honor. Uh, or it could be tactfully ignored. Uh, there is another uh, candidate in that same category I would submit for Your Honor's uh, consideration is Gosart versus Cleary. I feel that uh, Gosart is to sex as Plessy Vergus Ver versus Ferguson was to race and should be treated accordingly. In fact, as I read the Gosart decision, it was considerably worse than Plessy in the race because Plessy, while saying that the unfavored race would have to have its education and facilities and so forth separately, Plessy never went to, so far as to say the unfavored sex could be denied these things altogether. But Gosart went so far as to say the unfavored sex could be denied these things altogether. So that's one way I view Gosart as being considerably worse than Plessy versus Ferguson. Uh, it was not directly overruled, as Your Honor knows. Uh, it was uh, quietly put to rest as an example of the mentality of the age which gave it birth. Uh, I would propose, I would actually ask no more than for Cronin and for Gosart. Fred, Fred, Fred. Okay, so Fred is asking the Supreme Court to use this case to overturn, or in his words, quietly ignore two Supreme Court decisions that upheld sex-based distinctions in the alcohol context. One of those decisions is from 1904, and that's Cronin versus Adams. There, the Supreme Court upheld a law prohibiting the sale of liquor when women were present. The Supreme Court wrote that it's a question of public expediency and public morality and not federal law. And they wrote that a state may regulate liquor to mitigate its evils or suppress it entirely. And then Gosert versus Cleary was a 1948 law, so not nearly as ancient. And there, the Supreme Court upheld a law that prohibited women from being bartenders in cities unless their father or husband owned the establishment. Ugh, this is ridiculous. And so Ginsburg and Ranger Fred hoped that in striking down the Oklahoma beer law in this case, the Supreme Court would use the occasion to overrule these two prior decisions that remained good law at this time. I don't know why Fred Gilbert reached to say that Plessy versus Ferguson is considerably worse than Gosert. As I'm sure you remember from high school civics um, and or law school, whatever, um, Plessy is the 1896 decision of the Supreme Court that upheld the constitutionality of racial segregation laws in public facilities so long as they were supposedly equal. And that's that separate but equal doctrine that's probably familiar to you. And contrary to Ranger Fred's ridiculous argument, Brown versus Board of Education did overrule Plessy under Thurgood Marshall's advocacy. And I went back and looked at Brown versus Board of Education to see what it said about Plessy. And the court wrote, We conclude that in the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. Separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. And so although Ginsburg did not make the an unnecessary tie of uh, Plessy and Brown to Gosert, she definitely hoped that Gosert would go by the way of Plessy and be taken for off the record books. I love how she put it in her amicus brief. She wrote, Only by wishing away current precedent and reaching back more than a quarter century to Gosert v. Cleary can Oklahoma conjure up support for a gender-based differential in the context of liquor regulation. Once formidable authority for a sharp line between the sexes, Gosert is today an embarrassment 
reflecting the male-female role delineation offensive to the ethos of our society. Gosert appears conspicuously in briefs tendered below by the state officials. But significantly, the three-judge district court avoids citation to Gosert, tied as that decision is so plainly to old notions and archaic and overbroad generalizations. The instant case provides an opportunity for this court explicitly to overturn Gosert, a decision universally criticized in commentary, politely discarded by enlightened jurists, and overdue for a formal burial. So here are the last few minutes of Ranger Fred's opening, which really focus on statistics that the government had offered in support of this Oklahoma law. In an effort to show that this law was justified, the government offered statistics that purported to show that men are more likely to drive after drinking, and therefore that this law was justified because it furthered safety interests. And this statistical line of argument totally ignores how this sex discriminatory law perpetuates the stereotype that young men are rowdy and uncontrollable, and young women are docile, sweet-tempered, and follow the rules. And the way that these overbroad generalizations entrench and further false and patriarchal notions of gender. But the point I'm trying to make on these statistics, all we've got in what I call the sobriety, I take the liberty of calling the sobriety ratio, is that there's only a one or two percent difference. It's the way you juggle the statistics depending on which acts you've got to grind. I leave the court with the thought before I sit down for rebuttal that if that's all it takes to get around the Equal Protection Clause, let's forget equal protection. There will always be a couple of percentage difference between any two groups you separate, black versus white, male versus female, Catholic versus Protestant, whichever group the legislature is out to get, if all they have to do is rely on statistics like what happened below, then I think it'll be the beginning of the end of equal protection. Uh, Furthermore, just to run into my rebuttal time just a moment, a discrimination based on sex is like race because it's an accident of birth which can't be changed, and for at least 99% of human activity, it has absolutely no relationship to one's character, ability, competence, sobriety, or anything else. Now, if race is going to be treated differently from sex, it can only be because in sex there are some organic differences which for limited purposes might be relevant, and we have no analogy between the races. But for non-organic discriminations like this, I think it is indistinguishable for race, and I ask this court, although it's not necessary to this uh, case because the statistics really wouldn't pass even rational relationship muster, to maybe to clear the air, say that sex discriminations not based on organic differences can be treated the same as racial differences. Okay, so we just heard Ranger Fred argue that if the Supreme Court is persuaded that statistical differences between different groups of people is sufficient to justify treating those people differently under law, then that could be the beginning of the end of equal protection. And Ginsburg attacked the state's proffered statistics as well in her amicus brief. She argued that the statistics offered did not support the government's claim, that the statistics themselves were full of problems. There was this chivalry factor that she described, which was a statistical reality that for the same behavior, a male might be arrested where the female is escorted home, perhaps with a fatherly warning. And there were various other problems with the state's statistics. But she argued in her brief that even if this highly questionable statistical presentation on which the court relied served to prove the proposition asserted by the government that males drink more, drive more, and commit more alcohol-related offenses, that proposition does not suffice to justify the sex-age classification at issue here. Because such gross generalizations 
do not provide license for line drawing by gender. So I'm just going to play one short clip from the government's argument. The government was represented by James Gray. Gray is arguing that this Oklahoma law should be upheld because of the 21st Amendment repealing prohibition, counsels special deference in favor to state legislatures in the regulation of alcohol. And the justices, and particularly Justice Marshall, are pressing him on the limits of that theory. If the 21st Amendment is so powerful that it could potentially overcome the equal protection concerns here, then could it also be so powerful to allow states to draw distinctions on alcohol sales on the basis of race? And then he makes a pivot that I think is so interesting and so central to our project. Gray essentially says, listen, sex is not an inherently suspect classification as race is. And so discriminating on the basis of sex is fine because there's simply not a high enough standard of scrutiny that applies to such laws warranting that a court strike it down. About the 14th Amendment, Daniel. Oklahoma could pass a law and say no Negro can have a drink of beer. Your Honor, I wouldn't pretend, and I think the I state has already that. confessed that this I could not I personally hope you don't go that far. No, sir. <laughs> and I don't believe we will. And I, we've been, we've tried to say, and I think we have to say it again before this court, that we would not think that this evidence would justify a racial discrimination on the purchase of beer or alcoholic beverages of any kind. Uh, but we don't think we're in the inherently suspect area yet either. We don't think this court's told us that yet. And we think that under the Reed test that we have met the burden to show a rational relationship. So you get the point that James Gray was trying to make there. And I thought it was interesting because he seemed pretty open to the idea that the Supreme Court could raise the bar for laws discriminating on the basis of sex, but that they haven't done it yet. Okay, so before I get into what went down at conference and the court's decision in this landmark case, I think it would be remiss if I didn't play for you Ranger Fred's truly stunning performance in rebuttal. Your Honor, might please the court. On this question of standing, uh, my distinguished co-counsel has uh, offered me to invite your attention to two cases, Barrows versus Jackson in 346 U.S. and Sullivan versus Little Hunting Park in 396 U.S., that a white owner of real estate wishing to sell to Negroes does have standing to assert the equal protection rights of Negro vendees. And I think uh, that's relevant to the question here. That's partly uh, because that widens his market, doesn't it? He has an economic interest. In yes, Your Honor. Well, precisely economy. here. Uh, it's the same thing. Uh, also, on this question about the boys being able to get their liquor somehow, this is just part of the old thing in Oklahoma. The dries have had their law and the wets have had their liquor, kind of a gentleman's agreement, but I'll tell you who really is the loser in this scheme. It's the vendor who around election time can always expect to be raided by the local law. Uh, that goes to the standing. Uh, now, on this three-point, uh, getting intoxicated on 3.2, let me just say something factually from my own experience. 3.2 is so diluted that the normal man will get extremely bloated on the stuff before he can get drunk. It is possible to get drunk, but you have to force it down. I can <laughs> uh, it's difficult to get drunk on 3.2. Uh, the question was made about sex in the LaRue case. That is a different kind of sex than what we've got involved in that case. That's sex as activity. This is sex as a biological grouping. Uh, if, there's, if this court would uphold a rule saying you don't have to serve or you can't serve liquor at a horse race, you wouldn't say that 
the state under the 21st Amendment can regulate the alcohol and race relationship because that's using race in a different sense than the normal sense. And that's why I'm trying to explain the difference between sex in LaRue and sex here. It's the same word, but they mean two different things. Uh, these statistics, I want to mention one thing. They all date from 1973. Now, some of them date from 72, but they weren't published until 73. So this court is at liberty to take whatever inference it wants as to what was or what was not before the legislature when this statute was passed. Uh, okay, I just have one other thought. I leave you with the thought that the sobriety differential of 1 or 2% in this case was far less than the business experience differential in Reed versus Reed or the dependent differential between husbands and wives in Frontiero and, first and so forth, uh, Frontiero versus Richardson. We're really dealing with something almost de minimis in the sobriety ratio. Uh, to get the seeming imbalance, you have to juggle the statistics, which I discuss in my brief. But I, I, well, I don't have time for a parting thought. I thank you for your time. Thank you, gentlemen. The case is submitted. This oral argument took place on October 5th, 1976 and the Supreme Court issued its decision about two and a half months later, on December 20th. And the saying goes that you can't win an appeal at oral argument, but you can lose it. Despite his poor performance, though, Ranger Fred somehow managed not to lose this case. And the justices were sufficiently moved by the sex discrimination in the purchasing of beer, of all things, to side with Fred Ginsburg the Oklahoma Frat Boys, and the Honk and Holler. So what was the decision and how did we get there? After the oral argument wrapped, and I'm sure after some jokes between the justices, it was clear that five votes had emerged to strike down this Oklahoma law. The old standbys, of course, wanted to strike it down. Justices Brennan, Marshall, and White. Justice Stewart and Justice Stevens, who had just taken his seat on the bench less than a year earlier, also voted to strike it down. But yet again, the justices were divided on the standard of review that should apply to laws that discriminate on the basis of sex. The old standbys wanted strict scrutiny, but Justice Stewart was cautious about raising the bar from rational basis review again, and Stevens wanted something more than rational basis, but he wasn't sure what the standard should be. So this made Justice Brennan again, like so many times now, the senior member of the majority. Justice Brennan was known for whipping up votes among his colleagues of brokering consensus deals that could lead to the right results. And so the consensus opinion that he wrote not only got the votes of the original five justices from conference, but also Justices Powell and Blackman. The seven justices ruled for Curtis Craig, and for the first time, they created intermediate scrutiny review, a middle tier between strict scrutiny and rational basis. Here's the formal standard. Classifications by gender must serve important governmental objectives and must be substantially related to the achievement of those objectives. This is the standard that applies in challenges to laws discriminating on the basis of sex, even today. The court accepted Ginsburg's invitation to strike Gosert from the record books, the women can't be bartenders without their dads or husbands decision. Insofar as Gosert versus Cleary may be inconsistent, that decision is disapproved. And picking up on Ginsburg's direction from her amicus brief, they wrote, undoubtedly reflecting the view that Gosert's equal protection analysis no longer obtains, the district court made no reference to that decision in upholding Oklahoma's statute. Similarly, 
The opinions of the federal and state courts cited earlier in the text invalidating gender lines with respect to alcohol regulation uniformly disparaged the contemporary validity of Gosert. Justice Powell wrote a really interesting concurrence that was clearly in denial about the middle tier. He has this footnote where he wrote that, as has been true of Reed and its progeny, our decision will be viewed by some as a middle tier approach. While I would not endorse that characterization and would not welcome further subdividing of equal protection analysis, candor compels the recognition that the relatively deferential rational basis standard of review, normally applied, takes on sharper focus when we address a gender-based classification. So he didn't want to admit that they were doing something different in this opinion, when clearly for the first time they were setting out a clear standard that could be applied by the lower courts. The new Justice Stevens wrote a different in-denial concurrence, where he said, There is only one equal protection clause. It requires every state to govern impartially. It does not direct the courts to apply one standard of review in some cases and a different standard in other cases. That sounds laudable, but to me, that's just not true. We have strict scrutiny, and now we have a middle tier. So what do we make of this? This middle tier that continues to this day? You know, honestly, sometimes I get lost in counterfactuals. <laughs> what would it have been like if Justice Stewart had budged in the Frontiero case in episode one, and that plurality opinion would become a majority opinion in the law of the land? What if the Equal Rights Amendment had been ratified? But that's not what happened. What happened was that for sex equality under the U.S. Constitution, the women's rights movement had to settle for a middle tier. And over the years, intermediate scrutiny did prove to have legs. But the standard did not render laws discriminating on the basis of sex presumptively unconstitutional, in the same way that it would have if the mission for strict scrutiny review had prevailed. There are two episodes left where we'll dive into Ginsburg's, not Ranger Fred's, uh, remaining oral arguments before she is appointed as a judge. And we'll explore the continuing consequences of this partial victory, this half measure for the women's rights movement. For now, I'll say that the journalist Linda Greenhouse said it well in her book on the Burger Court. By never embracing strict scrutiny and never requiring a compelling justification for government policies that treat men and women differently, the Burger Court left room for other branches to legislate and implement. The result was a continuing conversation, one that continues to this day. After oral argument, Ranger Fred wrote to Ginsburg, Dearest Amica, your presence by my side packed considerable psychological clout. Enough clout, along with your good sportsmanship and scholarly contributions, to qualify you for the One of the Boys Award from the Machismo Law Society of Tulsa University Law School. Ginsburg replied, Dear Ranger Fred, I am sending you copies of August Strindberg's writing. It may help you understand that truth is not necessarily that which is asserted by two male witnesses. That's a wrap. I hope you all enjoyed the Ranger Fred show as much as I did. I want to give an especially hearty thanks to Megan Keenan, a recent law school grad who wrote a fabulous memo analyzing some of the key briefing of this case. It was really helpful to me. I also want to thank the indomitable, kind-hearted, hardest-working person I know, Jody Liu, for her feedback on a draft of this episode. As always, if you liked the show, please rate it, review it, and share it with a friend. It's a huge help in helping others find this podcast. You can also follow me at Ginsburg Tapes on Twitter and Instagram. And you can shoot me an email at GinsburgTapes at gmail.com 
or a DM as we heard earlier on this episode. And if you have a question, I'll try to answer it on the show. I'm planning on taking the rest of the summer off from posting new episodes to give me some more breathing room and also so that I can put out the best two possible final episodes from Ginsburg's oral arguments because we're done with Fred Gilbert now. One was good enough. And I'll keep you guys updated on the timing of those final episodes on the Ginsburg Tapes Twitter and Instagram. Until then, I hope everyone has a wonderful summer.